Welcome to What Would Jane Do? We've reached episode six, and today we're going to look at the satirical culture. That's the cartoons and the political jokes that were around at the time of Jane Austen. Now, I'm particularly interested in this because my very first book was all about the cartooning world and the theatre of the 1790s. That book's called The Diamond of Drury Lane. It's written for children but can be enjoyed by adults and hopefully is soon going to be a stage musical. So I had great pleasure when I had the chance to talk to one of the world experts on this subject. That's David Taylor. And he'll tell you a little bit about his life and his studies as he looks at Jane Austen and the cartooning world of the early 19th century. I am David Taylor. I'm an associate professor in the English faculty at Oxford and a fellow of St. Hugh's College here as well. I uh, specialise and teach um, 18th century literature, but my particular interests have been in the theatre of the 18th century and also in the satirical culture of the 18th century. In particular, my most recent book was about political cartoons in the period. So, um, particularly the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, exactly the time that, that Austen was, was living and writing, a period sometimes known as the golden age of, of caricature, the, the age that gave us the, the political cartoon as we really know it. So tell us, what would these political cartoons look like? Describe a typical one that somebody might come across. So uh, we tend to think now of political cartoons as uh, fairly small that we would see in a newspaper or sometimes now online as well. They're much larger for a start. Uh, political cartoons are yet to appear in newspapers. That won't happen really until the very end of the 19th century. So in this period, in Austin's period, political cartoons are sold as single sheets that are engraved, single engraved sheets. Uh, you can buy them uncolored, uh, slightly cheaper. You can buy them colored. They're a little bit more expensive. And uh, they're much larger. They're much, much larger. They might be, say, about that large in size, even, even larger sometimes. So you're doing there about uh, A3 or something like that, or bigger than that? Yeah, uh, 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 there's a great variation in size. They could easily be A3. Mm. Occasionally, a little, uh, uh, even a little bit larger than that. Uh, so really quite different there. We think of political cartoons as images that we might glance at, that we would expect to get the joke from in a matter of seconds. But what's interesting in the period is that people are uh, buying and looking at cartoons in a different way. They're looking at them in far greater depth so that the images are not just larger, they're often more detailed. They have more text, they have more uh, uh, details uh, at the level of uh, their, their iconography. And uh, people would buy these individual sheets. They might uh, paste them onto furniture, a fire screen, even a wall. If you go to Cork Abbey, the National Trust property in, in, in Derbyshire, you'll find a caricature room where the owner has pasted these images to, his, to, to the wall of a, of a particular room. More common... So it's not out of all possibility that Mr Darcy, for example, <laughs> Mr. might Mr. have a room dedicated to his caricatures. Mr. Mr Darcy could well have a room dedicated to caricatures. <laughs> I mean, it was quite common to have a room, uh, a print room uh, in, in these large houses. That, that print room would more commonly have uh, large engravings of... Uh, paintings uh, of, of classical scenes, scenes from classical Rome or whatever. The caricature room of the kind we see at Cork is a, a kind of variation on that theme. 
more commonly, people would buy them and paste them into albums. And then they would get those albums out and they would look at them uh, in a drawing room scene, perhaps after dinner. And it would be a social, uh, it'd be a social event, social activity that, that these cartoons were designed to be looked at collectively in ways that we probably don't, don't feel very familiar with now. So as most people won't have seen or knowingly have seen that 18th century right. cartoon, what are they looking at? So if you've got a favourite one, perhaps you could describe what you actually are looking at. So uh, one of my favourite ones uh, would feature the Prime Minister William Pitt, uh, who is naked and incredibly skinny, emaciated, and he's riding a white horse. Uh, and he's riding a white horse uh, with a, a firebrand of a sword over um, uh, these sprawling pigs. And the, 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 the image is, well, the image is, is doing quite a lot. It's very detailed. It also f features a number of opposition politicians who are also sent sprawling by the prime minister's horse. And it's uh, an image by the great uh, political cartoonist of, of the period, James Gilray. And uh, Gilray is, is satirising Pitt as death, the, the, the death on a pale horse from, uh, from the Book of Revelations. Uh, what he's also doing with the, the pigs who are scattered is satirising the uh, conservative writer Edmund Burke, who had described um, the, the, the masses or the mob in his, in his book Reflections on the, on the Revolution in France as the swinish multitude. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful image that can be read in a whole host of ways. And indeed, that's the, the beauty of, of images of this period in that um, they reward extended reading. They encourage, they invite sustained reading. And often they, they play uh, ambiguously in the way that we might not expect satirical cartoons to play now. We would expect the, the, the point to be, to be fairly obvious. Someone like Gilray was a master of, of satirising both sides at the same time. Gilray was briefly awarded a government pension, money essentially, to, to, to work and for the government and satirise the opposition. But it wasn't an arrangement that worked because Gilray was just um, uh, too wild uh, a satirist to, to be able to, uh, to limit, to narrow his satire to one particular target. So his images are dense. They're, they're, if you see the amazingly we have surviving some of his sketches for, for these images and they're, they're these frenzied uh, pen and pencil lines as he, as he creates these incredibly dense images which are just full of, of details. Every time I go back to an, to an image like the one I've described which was published in the, the early 1790s I, I see something new. So when you say after dinner people retire to the print room this is what they're discussing. Right. They're able right. to see more in yeah. There's lots of references that somebody may, one of them may pick up, and then somebody else will say, "Ah, oh, yes, but also uh, I, I, it's doing this." Absolutely, they they reward a kind of mutual decoding, we might say. I mean, I mean, and, and it's uh, so so popular uh, were they in album form that certain uh, print sellers in London started renting out albums in the way that I mean, it doesn't happen now, but. 15 years ago we might have rented a DVD from our local. In many ways it is a kind of blockbuster of the day, exactly. Now, what people are going to do for entertainment? Well they can, they can read um, and that, even that can be quite a social activity. Uh, they can go to the theatre but one thing they can do is, is rent an album of, of, of satirical cartoons and, and spend the evening uh, with, with company uh, laughing and, and thinking. Okay so we've got Jane Austen who for much of her life was living um, 
in fairly retired circumstances, mm. though she also does live in Bath for, for quite yeah. a few years. Where would she have seen cartoons? So she would absolutely have seen cartoons in Bath because of the, the standard practice for print sellers of the period, not just those selling the cartoons, but those selling any kind of reproductive print of, of portraits, of landscape paintings or whatever. Um, the standard practice was that they would display their, their, their latest wares by posting them in, in the windows of their, their shops. So if you walked along a high street in uh, late 18th century uh, Bath, early 19th century Bath, what you would see as you passed a print shop were, would be a, a variety of images. Uh, I mean, uh, Austen doesn't talk about the display of cartoons in any of her novels, but in Persuasion, her last published novel, uh, uh, the second half of which is, is located almost exclusively in Bath, uh, one of the characters, Admiral Croft, uh, uh, is interrupted by the heroine, Anne Elliot, uh, looking at a print shop window. and He's looking at uh, an engraving of a naval scene featuring a ship. He's not particularly happy with the way that the ship's been represented. But it's quite possible that in the window that Admiral Croft was looking at, that he, there may also have been alongside prints of naval pictures, also some satirical prints. And certainly that a shop like that in Bath would almost certainly have sold uh, satirical cartoons alongside um, engravings of, of paintings. So it's almost certain that not Austin would have encountered satirical images through uh, in the, on, on, on the high street. It, it, it would have been almost impossible for her to have avoided that to some extent because it was, so, it was such a common practice. And do you see the, because it was such a big part of the culture of the time, yeah. um, do you see this at all reflected in how she writes? I, I mean, absolutely. I think that um, the term caricaturist is a useful one, right? It, because it applies to someone like Gilray, who's working visually, he's working graphically uh, with an art of exaggeration. But, but Austin is also a master of, of uh, the art of exaggeration and moving between fully fleshed characters and, and what we'd call caricatures, uh, uh, funny, comic, exaggerated characters. I mean, so in Persuasion, I was just talking about someone like Sir Walter Elliot, the father of the heroine, who is uh, absurdly kind of uh, vain and narcissistic, never really uh, understands what's going on around him. He's so self-absorbed. Or, I mean, perhaps more famously, someone like Mrs. Bennet in, in Pride and Prejudice, again, a, a kind of wonderful caricature of a... Of a uh, an anxious mother um, who's only concerned really for, for getting her daughters married. Or again, in Pride and Prejudice, someone like Mr. Collins. And Mr. Collins is a good example because, uh, as Austin almost certainly would have seen, there were lots of satirical images at the time that satirised uh, the clergy, lots of, uh, often quite gently uh, sent up the, um, uh, the rhythms of uh, clerical life, particularly in, in country communities, of, of exactly the kind that, that Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice is, is coming from. Yes, you've also got, of course, Mr. Elton. Yes. Another favourite in Absol Emma. Yeah, absolutely. With another not... stereotype, well, caricature, it, it, the socially climbing... Um... Mr. Elton's another excellent example of Austin um, uh, honing her kind of satirical eye in on, uh, on, a, on a clerical figure, absolutely. And, uh, and what, what, what's, what, what's one of the, one of the aspects of, of Austen's art which is most skillful is the manner in which her novels combine characters and caricatures and indeed even move, you know, 
a character who might seem something like a caricature suddenly becomes something like a character, or you know, vice versa. So she suggests a fluidity between uh, a notion of character as uh, complex and highly developed and a notion of character as exaggerated, as comically absurd. I think Austen is so clever that we, we, we often move in her novels between one and the other uh, constantly. Mm. Uh, we also were thinking about earlier, weren't we, um, before we started, when we were chatting about mm. this for the podcast, was the juvenile works. Right where she actually collaborates with her sister exactly. Cassandra yeah. on the history of England by a prejudiced historian. Yes, yeah. Um, where she, well, perhaps you want to say a little bit about well, what you see in that work. Well, so, I mean, what's fascinating, and in fact, Austen's Juvenilia generally uh, tells us a lot about how far she was kind of, was training herself as an, not just an ironist, but, but a satirist. Mm -hmm. But we've also got in, um, in that work uh, that she's collaborating with, uh, her sister Cassandra, uh, we've got we've got images, haven't we, mm. uh, that Cassandra uh, ha has drawn. So again, linking Austen's art of writing to an to a to an uh, um, an equivalent kind of art of of exaggeration uh, in a, in a, in graphic form. So that's that, that that I think that says something about the way that we can really connect, and people have started to connect um, a visual culture. Uh, the visual culture that Austin would have been familiar with, um, with uh, Austin's mode of writing. I mean, perhaps the other thing to, that should be said when we're thinking about that juvenilia and her, her work with Cassandra and Cassandra's kind of illustrations, satirical illustrations, is that uh, caricaturing, that is you know, the art of physiognomic exaggeration, was a very, very popular pastime in, uh, in houses I mean, uh, uh, in the 18th century. It came, the art of caricature, came over from Italy uh, to England with the grand tourists in the first half of the 18th century. Uh, what then happened was uh, that it was taken up by uh, public satirists as a, as, a, as a useful form of satire, but it continued throughout the, the 18th century and into the early 19th century to be a common kind of domestic pursuit as well, not least with, with women. You know, women you know, uh, often uh, taught the skills of draftsmanship, would often, as a form of kind of play, uh, play together, uh, have engaged in, in, in caricature. So moving to our own day, mm. um, one of the things that may surprise Jane Austen is that her own works have occasionally popped up in political caricatures of our time. I think you have found a couple, mm. two or three of these. So what images within Austen have you found crossing over into our popular culture now to make political Right, points? I mean, so the, the most the most common uh, um, way in which Austen has recently been used in cartoons is since she became the, the face on the on the ten pound note. So there was a, a cartoon by by the, the the cartoonist for the Times, Peter Brooks, in twenty seventeen, just after Theresa May uh, lost, you know, in a surprise, a big surprise, lost her majority in the in the, uh, in, the, in that the general election of that year, and instead of Austen on the front of uh, the ten pound note. It was Theresa May uh, in the background. You had the Houses of Parliament crumbling away, and the quote that features on the on the on the ten pound note in England, the first the famous first line of uh, of Pride and Prejudice it is, is a truth, university knowledge, etc., etc., uh, is now in this cartoon uh, uh, with May on the front, 
it is, is a truth university acknowledged that I um, that I am, and then a rude word that suggests that she's uh, she's in real trouble. Um, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I, I was like uh, family audience. Um, so uh, that's one example. And there's some other uh, cartoonists who've also played with with the idea of Austin as the, as the face of the ten pound note. But another way in which um, Austin's featured in recent years in in cartoons in 2010. Colin Firth, uh, ahead of that, the general election in 2010 in, in, the, in the UK, Colin Firth backed the Liberal Democrats. Um, and of course, Colin Firth, absolutely always shadowed by you know, the, the part he most famously embodied, Mr. Darcy. Uh, by the end of 2010, when the, by which time the Liberal Democrats had, had joined the Conservatives in a coalition government and had, had rather controversially backed an increase in student tuition fees, which had been one of their, the, 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 the scrapping of, tu of tuition fees having been one of their, their major policy points before the general election, Colin Firth kind of uh, rather publicly uh, disavowed the Liberal Democrats. That This happened at the end of the year, in December 2010. And so in December 2010, there's a cartoon showing uh, Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy with his wet shirt emerging from, from the lake. Um, and someone in the background is noting that uh, in his swim, his Lib Dem rosette seems to have have detached itself and 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 disappears. So what's interesting there is that that famous scene, uh, not from Austen's novel, but from from the, from the BBC adaptation of the novel, uh, is being used to suggest a kind of political cleansing of of some kind of a purification, a, a shift of of identity. Uh, so that that's a particularly interesting recent recent cartoon. And the final question I've got for you on this, of course, is what do you think Jane Austen would have thought of this use of her work, even if it's a, a remove like the Colin Firth example? I think she would have laughed. I think she'd have found it hilarious. Um, I think she'd probably also have realised that it, it's a, a huge tribute to her um, because cartoonists are only going to use um, ideas, uh, languages, images that are readily recognisable. So in many ways, there's no uh, greater sign of how, uh, how important Austen is to our culture, how far her name is an instantly recognisable one, how far certain of her lines and certain of her characters are instantly recognisable to, to the general public. So there's no greater um, tribute to Austen, really, and, and sign of her, of her cultural uh, significance than, than her appearance in these cartoons. So I think she'd have laughed. I think she might also have been flattered. Thank you. So that was with thanks to David Taylor from St Hugh's College, Oxford. We had so much we wanted to talk about that we also went on to talk about Jane Austen and the theatre. So if you come back and listen to episode seven in this podcast, you'll find us discussing the world of Mansfield Park and London and Bath and all the theatrical performances that Jane Austen would have seen. But until then, when in doubt, don't forget you can always ask yourself, what would Jane do?